Welcome to Global Dispatches, a podcast for the international affairs, foreign policy, global development communities, and anyone interested in a deeper understanding of the world today. I'm your host, Mark Leon Goldberg, editor of UN Dispatch. Enjoy the show. Protest, looting, and riots have plunged South Africa into a deep crisis. Scores of people have been killed in this unrest, which was sparked by the jailing of former President Jacob Zuma on July 7th. At time of recording, the government was dispatching 25,000 troops to bring order, an unprecedented military mobilization in the post-apartheid era. On the line with me from Johannesburg is journalist Jeffrey York, the Africa Bureau Chief for the Globe and Mail. We kick off discussing the circumstances that led to former President Jacob Zuma being sent to prison and how and why his jailing sparked protests in key provinces in South Africa. We then discuss what this unrest reveals about inequality, poverty, joblessness, and state failure in South Africa. At time of recording, this unrest and civil strife was still ongoing, though the expectation was, as Jeffrey York explains, that as these troops are deployed, a modicum of order will be brought to certain cities and towns that have experienced the worst of this crisis. Still, this conversation does a good job providing you the context you need to understand what is driving this unrest in South Africa today. Before we start, as always, please send me your suggestions of people I should interview or topics I should cover, or let me know what else is on your mind. I I do love hearing from you. I produce this podcast for you, the listener, so I really do appreciate and encourage you to send me your feedback. You can hit me up on Twitter at Mark L. Goldberg or Use the contact button on globaldispatchespodcast.com. And one last thing, I always love it when regular listeners of the show, like Jeffrey York, become guests on the show. That's how it's supposed to happen. We're building a community here. Anyway, here is my conversation with journalist Jeffrey York of The Globe and Mail. Looking for a trustworthy podcast to bring you unfiltered viewpoints and experiences on global health? Tune into Global Health Matters, the podcast that connects silos and amplifies diverse voices to give you a holistic picture. Each month, Dr. Gary Aslanian from the World Health Organization hosts discussions with guests spanning former ministers of health, award-winning journalists and authors, and frontline public health workers. Join listeners from across 180 countries for an exciting Season 4, launching in June. Global Health Matters is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and YouTube. The South African government um, has set up a state inquiry into corruption. The term they use here is state capture. That means basically uh, when um, elements of the state, um, including state-owned enterprises and government ministries and so on, have essentially been captured by corrupt forces. In this case, it was, uh, as a lot of people know, it was primarily the well-known Gupta brothers from India who have been doing business in South Africa, became very close to Jacob Zuma, um, were in business with his son. 
and uh, became incredibly influential and then incredibly wealthy as a result of this. Um, so this um, uh, inquiry into corruption was actually recommended a number of years ago by the Public Protector, which is a constitutional uh, watchdog on corruption. And she had called for this inquiry to be held. And uh, this was under uh, the presidency of Jacob Zuma, who was president for nine years until 2018 when he resigned. And uh, under severe pressure, uh, Mr. Zuma eventually agreed to this inquiry. And he actually signed the documents to put the inquiry into effect. Um, so the inquiry has been going on for a couple of years and um, gathering a lot of uh, powerful evidence about corruption in South Africa. And uh, of course, at some point, it needed to talk to the former president himself uh, because he really seemed to be at the heart of so much of the corruption allegations that the inquiry was hearing. And it has been very good about giving everyone a chance to give their side of the story. It, um, it's, it's not a, a confrontational thing where it puts people on trial. It actually tries to get to the facts. So it puts people under oath. It asks them what's going on, what happened uh, in, in those years. Uh, it asks them about the various um, evidence that, is, uh, that they've gathered and investigated. And it gives, you know, cabinet ministers, former cabinet ministers, former top officials a chance to reply to that evidence and to give their side of the story. So it's actually been very fair and very balanced. But when it came time for Mr. Zuma to testify, he did testify at the beginning um, for, for, for a couple of days. But basically, he did not really answer any questions. He simply gave a, a monologue um, talking about very cons you know, various conspiracy theories, uh, how he felt like a victim, uh, basically rambling on and on, giving his version of events, but not responding to any specific questions. When it came time to the specific questions, he basically refused to testify. He even walked out of the hearings. Uh, that was last November. The uh, inquiry then went to the, to the courts. Uh, well, first of all, it actually filed... Uh, a charge of, 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 of uh, contempt, contempt of court, with the South African authorities. Uh, but the South African prosecutors basically just sat on it, did nothing. So uh, after a couple of months in January, the uh, inquiry went to the South African uh, highest court, the Constitutional Court, basically the equivalent of the Supreme Court, and uh, asked it to issue an order uh, that Mr. Zuma be legally required to testify. Uh, the Constitutional Court did that. Meanwhile, Mr. Zuma was basically saying, I don't care what you do. You can put me in jail. You can prosecute me. I don't care. I, I'm not testifying. So he, he did not even actually provide his response to the, uh, to the application to the court. He, he just ignored it, basically. So uh, at that point, the inquiry... Uh, had this court order saying he must testify. He still did not testify. He ignored the court order. So then the inquiry went back to the constitutional court and said he must be uh, put in, he must be given a jail sentence because of the seriousness of his refusal to obey the court orders. Basically uh, like a contempt of court sort of thing. Yes, exactly. I mean, basically the principle from the inquiry is nobody is above the law. He's been given every possible chance 
He, he is now defying the court orders of the highest court in the land. Uh, we can't allow uh, someone to defy the courts and place themselves above the law. So it made this argument at the Constitutional Court, and uh, a couple of weeks ago, the court agreed with the inquiry and issued a ruling uh, that Mr. Zuma should be taken to prison for 15 months. Uh, again, Mr. Zuma defied that, stretched it out, refused to go, refused to surrender uh, until the very last minute, uh, which was last Wednesday night, uh, and basically late at night, uh, the last possible minute, he agreed to be taken to prison, which is where he now is. So how was it then that going to jail sparked this massive nationwide protest? Well, it, it, it was not really a nationwide protest. I think that has to be clarified. Mm-hmm. Um, it was a, a, a protest in a few areas of his stronghold, which is KwaZulu-Natal province. Um, and what happened basically is, you know, you have to consider that the, if you look at South Africa as a whole, the kind of explosive material has been gathering for many years. And all Zuma did was light a match, really. Uh, because the potential was always there. In fact, the kind of um, lawlessness, impunity, um, mob violence, uh, widespread kind of crime and corruption, attacks on businesses and so on, have been happening for many years in South Africa. Um, and it's become a, uh, a tactic for uh, business groups and political groups in, in uh, various locations in South Africa. Um, and... So when when uh, Mr. Zuma went to prison, his faction, I think, it basically could see the writing on the wall that it had lost the internal power struggle within the African National Congress, the ruling party. Uh, it was now the losing faction. It was losing its traditional power. Uh, the fact that Mr. Zuma had been taken to prison was really a symbol of that. It was really a confirmation that he no longer had the influence even to stay out of prison. Uh, and I think there was an anger uh, among his faction about that and um, a, tr- a determination to show that they still had influence. So what we saw is on, on social media, on WhatsApp groups um, and so on, we saw uh, basically an attempt to organize what they call a shutdown. Uh, that a shutdown means that business and so on should should shut down. And it's basically a signal uh, to people, to, to the supporters of Mr. Zuba, that um, when you're doing a shutdown, that can include violence, it can include arson, it can include looting, and so on. That's The term shutdown is, to some extent, uh, these days especially, seen as kind of a, a euphemism for mm-hmm. a, a violent shutdown. So the Zuma camp directly and deliberately uh, sought to enact this, you know, euphemistic shutdown uh, in order to apply pressure on the government or exact some sort of like price for putting Zuma in jail. Yeah, I think so. And to, to restore its influence and uh, to signal that uh, it still had power within the Mm. ANC. Um, But again, at a certain point, it went beyond the control of this faction they may have uh, lit the match, uh, but I don't think they really knew how far it would go. There's so many other factors at work. Um, 
so much uh, economic frustration, uh, fr frustration over rising unemployment, a lack of economic hope, a lack, lack of uh, job opportunities, um, uh, very severe inequality in the country. Uh, people are people in South Africa are surrounded by consumer goods uh, in their in their shopping malls and so on. But you know most people can't afford them. Uh, so it, it's it's very much a, a rich and poor economy still. Um, and that was another one of the of the key stimulating factors here. That kind of inequality that that exists is probably worse in South Africa than any other country in the world, especially if you measure by you know standard measures like the Gini coefficient and so on. Uh, the World Bank did a study saying that South Africa had the most inequality in the world. So severe inequality was certainly mm -hmm. one of the one of the factors here. The Protests began in KwaZulu-Natal, which includes the city of Durban, and it spread, though. Could you kind of take us through the sort of timeline of events as they have unfolded over the past week since the imprisonment of Jacob Zuma? Well, it, it certainly spread to Gauteng province, which is the economic heartland of the country where Johannesburg and Pretoria are located. But really, it's been only in those two provinces. Now, those are major, major provinces. I mean, two of the, the, the two most populous provinces in the country. But it is significant uh, that this uh, unrest and looting and so on did not happen in some of the poorer provinces of South Africa. So it would be simplistic to say uh, that this is solely due to hunger or poverty. Those are contributing factors. But if you look at the bigger picture, the poorest parts of South Africa were not rioting. Uh, it was KwaZulu-Natal and Gauteng, which are the two provinces where the Zuma camp has a fair amount of influence. Uh, and I don't think that's co that's coincidence. Um, at the same time, uh, you know, you could look at those two provinces also as places where there's been a lot of uh, anti-foreigner violence, attacks on uh, uh, foreign-owned shops, uh, which have been going on for many years in South Africa and basically have been occurring with impunity because the police generally stand by and just watch. The looting and the rioting itself were, at least from what I've read from, from reports and, and from your reporting, really you know widespread. You had sort of massive supply chain disruptions as well to the point where I've seen concerns about you know lack of food access in in, in many places, lack of medicines, uh, and it, it seems to have been also seemingly systematic in some cases. Yeah, I think that's true. Uh, the there seems to be evidence again from WhatsApp groups and social media that uh, there was a targeting that went on. Certain uh, shopping malls or uh, stores, businesses were targeted, um, and. Uh, it's not a coincidence that, uh, you know, w one of the biggest targets was this area with a lot of warehouses in on the outskirts of Durban, uh, Durban being an ocean port and therefore receiving a lot of imported goods and having warehouses around the city uh, to, to store those goods as they come in uh, and then sort of being a distribution hub for the rest of the country. So uh, these big warehouses existed and were clearly targeted. Now, uh, one question is, to what extent was that orchestrated? And to what extent was that simply people knowing where uh, the most valuable goods were and possibly the uh, the goods that might be uh, possible to loot? Uh, and uh, 
So you had uh, very systematic loot- looting and ransacking going on where entire shopping malls were mm. in, just completely gutted, uh, uh, so everything stolen and then set on fire. So I, I think in total, there was something like 200 shopping centers across South Africa in KwaZulu-Natal and Hauteng provinces that uh, were were ransacked and looted, um, and many of them set on fire as well. So it was quite large scale. And what has the government response been so far? Well, um, the biggest response, uh, certainly on a historical level, is that they've sent in the military. Um, Initially, they deployed 2,500 troops. That was on Monday. Uh, A couple days later, uh, they doubled it to 5,000. And then uh, late uh, yesterday, they announced that uh, the plan is to deploy 25,000 troops. Now, that's actually more than they really have available in terms of infantry troops. So a lot of that would be support personnel and and, and reserves. Um, And they may not actually hit that number. Uh, But 25,000 is a huge number. Uh, It would be probably a third of the entire armed forces. Uh, And it would certainly be the biggest deployment of the South African military since the uh, end of apartheid. So it's it's a, a very big deal to have that kind of military deployment. And it really um, signals that the police uh, have been incapable of, uh, of controlling the situation. You know, you think back historically, uh, it was only a decade ago that South Africa hosted the World Cup and uh, hired a lot more police and was able to have a very successful World Cup with uh, very few incidents of uh, violence or or anything that would really embarrass the country. It was a hugely successful World Cup. In, I almost spotted Vuvuzela after watching that World Cup. <laughs> That's right. So it was it was quite internationally acclaimed as being very successful. And at that time, South Africa greatly increased the number of police that it hired. And since then, the numbers of police have gone down. Uh, the budgets have been cut and. Uh, that's part of the problem is that the police are just not not really capable of dealing with a large-scale event of this kind. But at the same time, it has to be pointed out that too often the police have just stood idly by and watched as violence or looting has taken place for years, actually, not just in this latest incident. I mean, and, and that's a point you make in a, a recently published piece in the Globe and Mail, that there has been what you identify as this an almost slow unraveling of the state that has taken place over the last several years. But you've had these incidents over the last several years. You describe, you know, just like the slow scale looting of, say, train stations and the decimation of certain state functions that have, you know, happened slowly over the last, you know, several years. Yeah. And I think it all really, it all stems back to the economy. I mean, if the economy was growing, uh, this kind of looting probably would not be happening because people would have jobs, they'd have a sense of economic hope, uh, there would be some optimism, uh, but the economy has not been growing. It's now six consecutive years where per capita, uh, per capita incomes have not been growing. So basically, GDP per capita has not grown or has declined for six years now. Uh, so, and, and meanwhile, unemployment has been increasing. So basically you've got, you know, young graduates of high school or university who have no prospect of jobs uh, or very little prospect. Uh, and that's contributed to this incredible frustration. At the same time, you know, the government's debt has increased considerably. 
especially during the Zuma presidency. Um, a lot of that money was really wasted. I mean, there was uh, inflated uh, corrupt contracts, uh, uh, excessive um, hiring in the public service, um, and, and really the money did not go to badly needed infrastructure or even essential maintenance for things like the electricity monopoly. So you've had this kind of uh, slow motion crumbling of a lot of sectors of the state. Uh, electricity, I mean, it's, it's now been uh, uh, more than 10 years of frequent uh, electricity power outages, uh, which have you know, come and gone depending on the situation. But uh, the past two or three years, they've been happening at a fairly frequent pace again. Uh, and it's because of a lack of maintenance of the electricity system uh, where, you know, the monopoly, the state controlled monopoly has basically been spending a lot of its money on uh, uh, inflated contracts and, and corruption uh, instead of maintenance. So I've been following your reporting, your work uh, from South Africa I don't know, for as long as I can remember, for as long as I've been doing this, I've, I've been reading your reporting. Uh, I'm curious to learn from you what this moment has revealed to you about you know, the nature of society or politics in South Africa as a foreign correspondent who's been there for so long. What does this moment suggest to you about South Africa? Well, a couple of things. I mean, I think I should first be quick to say that it shows uh, that South Africa is a very resilient society because it just keeps surviving this kind of thing, it keeps bouncing back. Um, you know, after the looting basically ended, there's been all over the country, all over the, the, the Houting and KwaZulu-Natal provinces, there's been massive cleanup efforts, uh, volunteer efforts to uh, to reopen stores, to clean up the messes, uh, to restore business and so on. So it, it has to be said, it's a very resilient society that has gone through a lot and has always managed to keep going. Um, at the same time, I think it really does speak to uh, the the fact that the ruling party, the ANC, has now been in power for 27 years. Uh, it shows no sign of giving up power. The opposition has been ineffe- ineffective. Uh, both of the two major opposition parties are just not very popular at all. They're showing no signs of real significant growth. So that means that the ANC knows that it's going to be staying in power. And uh, the party has been basically kind of disintegrating into factional fighting, which has been incredibly damaging for the country. So you have politicians within different factions in the ANC uh, fighting for power and putting themselves ahead of the country and doing huge damage to the country. Um, And I think that's, you know, the, the danger of having one party in power for 27 years and not feeling any fear of losing power. Lastly, you know, in the coming weeks and months, even what will suggest to you how this situation may unfold, whether or not there will be like some sort of reckoning or uh, whether things will go back to normal or whether conflict and crisis will escalate? Well, um, I think that's the key question, because even if, uh, you know, it's, it's now becoming clear that this particular crisis will get resolved. Uh, I mean, if you mobilize 25,000 soldiers, you're probably going to get a grip on things. And that seems to be what's happening now. Uh, But the the real question is, will it happen again? Um, Has this been kind of a lesson to many people that they can do this and get away with it? 
um, and that uh, you know politicians within the ANC may see that this was actually, although it didn't achieve all of their goals, it was uh, pretty good at creating a, a crisis that dominates the country and uh, distracts the government. It may be a useful weapon to them for future. Um, and you know, many ordinary people may also see that uh, uh, that there's not very many arrests from looting. I mean, there has been more than a thousand arrests, but there's been uh, clearly tens, many tens of thousands of people participating in the looting. So if, if the kind of sense of impunity continues as it has for many years, then this could easily happen again. And that's the real danger. Well, Jeffrey, thank you so much for your time. This was very helpful. Thank you. All right. Thank you all for listening. Thank you to Jeffrey York. Uh, We spoke kind of last minute and I was glad for his flexibility and his availability to help explain to me and to you what is happening in South Africa at the moment. All right. We'll see you next time. Thanks. Bye.